Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to the glory that we may not always see. Open our hearts that you might shine your light in our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about all the light we do not see. Today's Gospel reading tells of a moment that drew back the curtain on a realm of light and glory. So verse 29, as he was praying, that is, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. Now, our world is certainly full of light and glory. We often see and hear and experience glorious splendour in the natural world around us. But the light and the glory here in Luke 9 is a different light and a different glory. It's the light and the glory of the realm of God. What Peter, James and John saw was a visible sign of what is really essentially invisible, the divine glory, the divine goodness, the divine purity, the divine clarity and wisdom. This experience that these three disciples shared on the mountain with Jesus was a gift. It was a gift that showed them that Jesus is one who shares in God's glory, who belongs to that realm of unseen light and goodness and wisdom. Now, as we come across an account like this, we are conscious we live in a sceptical age. Where is this realm of light and glory? Why is it hidden so successfully? Who has managed to produce good evidence for it? Surely it's an illusion, a fantasy, says the sceptical age. We also live in a secular age. Who needs a realm of light and glory, of spiritual power. Isn't the good, honest light of the sun and darkness of the night all we need? Says the secular age. Well, today let's look at the transfiguration, the unveiling of the realm of light and glory on that mountaintop. The transfiguration, firstly, in its own day, in its own moment, and secondly, the transfiguration in our day. Those are the two parts of the sermon this morning. So let's begin with the transfiguration in its own day. And the transfiguration in its own day proclaims Jesus to be, firstly, the servant of God alongside Moses and Elijah. Moses was sent by God to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to a new life as an independent people, as an independent nation, as one who belonged to God. That is the great event of the Old Testament known as the Exodus. And the Israelites, having come out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, come to Mount Sinai, a mountain in the wilderness, and upon that mountain a cloud descends, and Moses goes up the mountain into the cloud and meets with God and brings back from there, from that encounter, the law, um, you know, 
summarised and typified by the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone which he brings. And as he comes down, and this is for the second time, with the second set of tablets, uh, he appears with a shining, radiant face. And so that's our Old Testament reading from Exodus 34, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So there's Moses. On the other hand, the other figure is Elijah, who also met God on Horeb, the mountain of God. And in 1 Kings 19.11, Elijah is told by the Lord, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And after, you may know this story, wind and an earthquake and fire and finally a gentle whisper, Elijah pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And the Lord instructed him there about how he was to proceed at this juncture of his prophetic ministry. And that we see Jesus in the company with Moses and Elijah puts him alongside these, the greatest prophets of Israel who encountered God on a mountain. And we might read this account and want to know, were they really there? Moses and Elijah? And if so, where did they come from? And where did they go? And how did Peter and John and James know who they were? I mean, were they wearing name tags? And I can't answer most of those questions. I mean, to the first one, were they really there? My answer is I presume they were. But how they got there, where they went afterwards, and how Peter, John and James recognised them, I don't know. You can talk about it over morning too. But Luke does give us a topic of their conversation. They spoke, he says in verse 31, about his departure, which he was about to bring about at Jerusalem, bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. And his departure here is a way of referring to his death, his coming death, which he had recently begun explicitly to teach his disciples about. So in chapter 9, verse 22, just a few verses earlier, he has said, the Son of Man, that is himself, must be killed and at the third day be raised to life. So this is the departure, that is the topic of this discussion, this this great and holy moment. His departure is referred to actually using uh, the Greek word exodus. They spoke about his exodus and that's a rare word and it evokes obviously the, the exodus, the redemption of Israel from slavery. And so, like Moses, Jesus has an exodus to perform. And an exodus is a redemptive journey from a state of slavery and captivity to a state of freedom and new identity. And this journey runs for Jesus uh, through his death for sin, for our sin, and his resurrection to new life. And he takes us up and into himself as he goes out on this terrible journey to Jerusalem, to the cross, to the grave, to the right hand of his Father. And he takes us up and into himself on this journey that we might be carried along with him in this exodus from our slavery to sin, our captivity to mortality and into life with God. This exodus is greater than Israel's exodus from Egypt, which is why Peter 
misses the mark with his suggestion in verse 33 that, you know, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. Now, you have to feel for Peter here. I mean, here is the world's best-selling book, the Bible. It's been read for thousands of years by millions of people, and it uh, relates several dumb things that Peter did. And he might, um, you know, feel like, oh my goodness, (laughs) what a life I've lived that's been recorded in this way. Let us put up three shelters, one each for you, Moses and Elijah. And Luke makes this excuse for Peter. He did not know what he was saying. You know, they were sleepy, they were jolted into alertness by this shining light, this visit from Moses and Elijah. And what's Peter doing? Is he trying to be hospitable? Is he trying to honour the luminaries before him? Is he trying to prolong the moment by getting them to stick around? We're not sure, but uh, maybe John and James kind of looked down and shuffled their feet nervously, thinking, Peter, in front of Moses and Elijah too, you know, we can't take you anywhere. Well, God himself corrects the suggestion that Jesus and Moses and Elijah all deserve the same, that is, a booth, because they are all somehow on a par. They are peers. The great ones, Moses and Elijah, are joined by another great one, Jesus, to form a nice trio. Well, part two of the transfiguration experience proclaims Jesus as uniquely the Son, the Son of God, above and beyond Moses and Elijah. And so in verse 34, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Not even Moses and Elijah compare with Jesus. The cloud which signals the Lord's own presence descends. The voice which speaks the Lord's own word says, This is my Son. Whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And Moses and Elijah are gone as the voice speaks. And Jesus stands alone. There is the transfiguration in its own day and moment. What about, though, the transfiguration in our day? Now, we might dearly wish that we could have our own mountaintop experience with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. I mean, perhaps we'd know not to suggest building shelters, but we would glimpse that realm of light and glory for ourselves. And wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't that be so heartening and assuring? Well, the fact is that people can and do have experience of that light that we do not see. The light That is knowing God and his glory, his goodness, his truth, his clarity, his wisdom and his purity. In 2 Corinthians 4, which we heard some of in our New Testament reading, Paul talks about in a later bit, the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel 
that displays the glory of Christ. The gospel, the very announcement about Jesus Christ who lived, who died and who rose for us, who carried us from death to life in his great exodus. That gospel has a light that displays the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light to shine in our hearts, to give us the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. There is a realm of light and glory that shines in a way we do not see, but can experience. The sceptic may disbelieve this, and it's true that this light can't be picked up in our detectors. The secularist may wonder why this other realm could be wanted. Hasn't this world got enough depth and truth and wonder? And yet even so, we Christians say God has made his light shine in our hearts. And we are glad he did. God made his light shine to give us the knowledge of his glory displayed in the face of Christ. And Peter later wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Lately at St Edmunds, we've touched on some pretty fundamental aspects of being a Christian. If you're here for 1 Corinthians 13 and the most excellent way of love, you may recall what I said, that this is absolutely foundational to the Christian way. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, a couple of weeks later, the first importance of taking a stand on the resurrection of Christ. Well, here today we are reminded of seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Meaning that we understand that Jesus stands alone. He's above Moses and Elijah. He's above Buddha and Muhammad. He's above Marx and Freud and Nietzsche. This means that Jesus is the person through whom God's light and glory shines upon us and upon the whole world. This is my son, says the Lord. Whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Let's pray. Lord, we do rely upon you to shine your light upon us. Not just the light of creation, but the light of your glory. And so, Lord, as you made light shine out of darkness, so we ask that you would make your light shine in our hearts. To give each of us the knowledge of your glory displayed in the face of Christ, the Son whom you have chosen. Teach us, Lord, to listen to him, to seek his face, to know him and his word to us, that it may be for us light and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.